0: Psychology in Seattle. So, Bob, I thought we would answer some patron emails, as we usually do, and see if we have any interesting responses that will uh, help the listeners forget about their misery and move on with their day. What do you say? That sounds good. I hope we're not boring. (laughs) This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Garconda. I'm a therapist a professor and also someone who doesn't want to be boring to the listeners. Who are you, Bob?
1: Uh, Yeah, not interested in boredom. I am a therapist in practice here in Seattle, and you and I have been friends for 25 years from grad school way back when. You're bored of boredom? Yes, I've had enough boredom for the day.
0: So an anonymous patron wrote in and said, is it possible to have a mild form of borderline personality disorder, or is borderline personality disorder a mental illness That is an exaggeration of normal. Uh, If borderline personality disorder is normal emotions amplified, is it possible for that description to be applied to all mental illnesses? Bob, what do you think?
1: This is a really good question. Yeah. I like this question. Yeah. Uh, What do I think? I think um, sort of, yeah. Uh, I mean, the minute you say it's borderline personality disorder, you're saying this as it meets certain criteria and it's clinically significant, blah, 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 blah. Like it has an impact on somebody's life. But I think what the patron's asking is, are there milder forms of those kinds of emotional troubles? And yeah, totally. Right. Um, would you call somebody borderline? No, because you have to meet these criteria. That's just a diagnosis. And that's not really useful to people, this diagnosis, this label. It's only useful somewhat. But the label itself isn't as important as just an understanding of what's going on. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Labels are just labels. The
0: better thing to establish is an understanding and it doesn't matter what label you put to it. Yeah. Labels are for us to bill insurance. It's yeah. for us to do research. It's for us to communicate to large audiences without having to explain the full criteria. Right. When you say borderline personality disorder to a group of clinicians who know about such things, they basically know what you mean. But it's a shorthand. We, it's shorthand, yeah. But it doesn't describe someone. I mean, you know, when we have a client and we're conferring consulting and I say to a group of colleagues, so this client has borderline personality disorder, what should I do? The first question all the consultants will ask is, well, tell us about the client. Yeah. Like, okay, you gave us something, something. Which, but that's pretty minor in terms okay. of what we're looking at here. Tell us, tell us more about this human being. Right. Tell us about the whole person and uh, the type of borderline or the severity or the right. particular symptoms that are uh, changing over time, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah. So anonymous patron, I, I agree with what Bob is saying. Um, to answer your questions specifically here. So is it possible to have a mild form of borderline personality disorder? Well, it depends on, on what we mean by the label. So I prefer to use the term just borderline personality. Mm. We, I, we, I, And I use borderline personality disorder to describe what is generally accepted to be the threshold at which you need to rise above to uh, qualify for the label in the DSM-5. Good sense. So it's not – and so below that, you can have borderline personality but not rise to the threshold of borderline personality disorder. Yeah. So absolutely, in my book, you can absolutely have a mild form. And, I, and most clinicians adhere, I think, to that principle, whether or not they will say that lower level, what the language in our clinical sure. is, they'll say borderline traits is what they'll say. But I actually don't like that because that implies somehow that borderline personality disorder people don't have traits because they do. Yeah. It's just, it, it rises above a certain threshold. Threshold. Um, so uh, so, there's that, um, and also before the f- DSM-5 was published, there was a lot of push, and it almost passed. The model for personality disorders was going to be all spectra. It was, uh, it was not. There wasn't going to be any, you know, the, of this old language around like you either have this disorder or you don't. It was all going to oh. be spectrum continuum yeah continuum and yeah and i was really curious i remember reading about the model and not really quite looking into it much and i remember being very intrigued by it yeah but at the last minute they just said "Ah, we're just going to go with with the old Mm -hmm. system and you know whatever the next question is borderline personality disorder a mental illness that is an exaggeration of quote-unquote normal yeah absolutely yeah um all the personality disorders are uh Exaggerations of normal, you could say. Amplifications,
1: I mean, right? Yeah.
0: So all of us. So the the core feature of borderline is sensitivity to abandonment and rejection, which makes someone feel very hurt and then subsequently very angry. And um, we've all been there. <laughs> yeah. We've all been rejected and then hurt and then angry. I would venture to say, on a daily basis everyone has at least a minor occurrence of that. Sure. When you really become aware of our emotional lives and emotional field and emotional social reality, you go to the grocery store and you, you're you waiting in line to pay for your groceries and you get up to the cashier and you notice that the cashier was really nice to the customer in front of you and the cashier turns to you and, and says... Um, and doesn't really say anything or just treats you like like you're just a a, a nameless customer. Mm-hmm. In that moment, it if you don't have the following experience, you're either in denial or there's something wrong with you, which or not wrong with you. Or you may be preoccupied atypical, with something else. Atypical. You know, just, you're preoccupied with something else, right? Sure. Distracted. But if you're paying attention, which you know, in a situation like that I imagine most people are, there's a minor rejection that's, a, that's occurring there and there's a, and likely
1: to interpret as such in a very subconscious minor way. That happened this morning when I was at Starbucks. Okay. I go in there, I go in there every morning, order the same thing. They all know me because I used to spend a lot of time there. Which one do you go to? The one over there by my house over there in Shoreline. 145th? 145th, yeah, and 15th. And um, That's a busy one. Yeah, it's hard to get parked. That's the worst parking lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I drive a small car. It's good there. Ugh. Yeah. Anyways, so the, you ever have to park across the street at the Safeway? Uh, twice. Got but it. that's not bad. It's ten years So twice. I've had to park across the street. Okay. Yeah. So it's not too shabby. Yeah. Um, but there are times I've just simply left because it's so jammed. Oh, yeah. Bummer. Yeah, yeah it is. It's kind of a bummer. You don't go but, through the drive thru Oh, I don't believe in drive-throughs. Oh. Yeah. Plus, then you have to use a paper cup because you can't give them your cup. I like bringing my cup. You bring a cup? Oh yeah, yeah. Everywhere. I got it right here. Do you want to see it? Wow, it's very. It's very Seattle of you. It is. It's it's, it's very it's green, too. It's very Seattle of me. Yeah. Anyways, um, the person... It's funny. It was a new cashier, and she was training somebody, and I didn't know either of them. And this woman addressed me by name. And this other guy who actually made my... I don't get coffee. I get a hot chocolate. This guy made my hot chocolate, Josh. He's like, Bob, give me your cup. So I give him my cup, whatever. And then she addressed me by name, and she's like, hot chocolate, right? She actually knew my order. I don't know how she knew it. So, yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she was really friendly and nice, and um the guy behind me was new and she addressed him rather anonymously and i thought i wonder if that stings yeah yeah
0: right so it it of course it does yeah the the severity of it is is the only question it's yeah. like how much how much does it sting right is it like point one percent sting or is it 50 percent sting is it going to ruin his day right or is it or is it so under the surface
1: that you really just don't even notice and so hey i like what you just said yeah because those things actually do they register in your brain but they might be under the surface they might be sort of sub sub threshold i don't i don't love that word but you know yeah the way you used it, I loved it. The way I'm using it, I'm not in love with it. <laughs> but it, but if it's un, but 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 you know you're a human being, so of course you're going to be impacted by the things that happen. Yeah, and sometimes they happen below awareness. Right, awareness. That's what I meant.
0: Sub-awareness. So imagine if they happened a hundred times a day, they right. they, would, they would pile up. But if they just happen right. once or twice, right. it, it probably doesn't pile up. And there's going to be a minor hurt, right. A minor pain, and because we are evolved social creatures right. that are programmed from birth for most of us to be very sensitive to that and be very wary of that and also to strive to be accepted and liked and secure in our relationships. Right. And this is actually, this isn't a new hypothesis, but it's one of the reasons why we might be seeing an increase in anxiety and depression because we live in a society where we're in contact with a lot of anonymity. Anonymity. When we don't know if someone likes us or not, and we're not designed for that no. we're designed to interact with strangers like once a year yeah and and we're probably with ten of our closest family members and friends when we when we meet these new weirdos, you know that think of a tribe yeah and uh to come into and whereas modern city life now is the opposite, you might go for days without being around people that you really trust. I haven't seen you in a month. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, how is that? You know, we're in contact with all these, I mean, maybe that's part of the w- reason why you go to the Starbucks. Cause you know, the people there, it's part of the moti- it is. motivation, you know? yeah, it it's is. like, it I'm going to go see Josh and I am secure. He's a good guy. I, yeah. I, I, we like each other. We trust each other. Yeah. So to answer your question, anonymous patron, absolutely. Uh, when, uh, uh, you're particularly traumatized by this and everyone has some trauma around being rejected for sure but when you have when it as as it gets higher in degree and more intensity from early mistreatment and abandonment then you're going to be more sensitive and more hurt and perhaps more angry when these sort of things happen
1: So and and more vulnerable to the possibility of those things, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. Right. So yes, borderline is an exaggeration of of a normal thing. All the personality disorders are. Yeah, uh, they're all somewhat, by definition, exaggerations of things that we all experience. Uh, You know, to give another example, with avoidant personality. Ah, That's what I was thinking. Yeah, we've all been at a point where we felt like you know what i just need to distance myself from right. these people i uh, i can't handle these people i just need to be alone mm-hmm. um i can sort of depend on myself and i just need to get away mm-hmm. like everyone move away from me and i'm i'm just going to hole up so so what i would say uh for the for the non traumatized normal range this will be like once every couple months or something and You're having you're having you've been burnt a few times at work or with friends or with parties or family members or something. Yeah. And you're just like you know, okay, this weekend I'm not gonna do anything social. Right. I'm just gonna stay home and I'm gonna watch Netflix and I'm gonna eat ice cream and I'm just gonna chill at home and play video games and I'm I'm just not gonna I don't want to interact with any other human beings. Okay. Everyone's been there. Sure. Now If you were particularly traumatized mistreated growing up to the point where you were consistently made to feel that way, even at the age of 12 months, 24 months, 36 months, where at that age you're saying, I can't deal with other people because of the way that they make me feel. I'm going to avoid other people and depend on myself. Well, then that becomes – a lifestyle and a coping strategy that extends into adulthood and uh, but and doesn't resolve the sensitivity and the need for attachment with other people and you're very sensitive because you've been rejected and mistreated growing up so you have that you are also very sad and lonely because you've never had closeness with other people and resent other people for that reason and so when someone is invading your space or annoying you or rejecting you or something, there's this extreme reaction to that because of all those traumas and all those pains and all those rejections and a very rote coping style of isolate. Right. You know, this confirms why I do not interact with other human beings. Right. You know, why did I make that mistake? Of course, this interaction went terribly because it always goes terribly. So, back to my video games.
1: But it would only happen if underlying the whole damn thing was my need for contact. Right. Otherwise, who gives a shit? Exactly. And that's a
0: misinterpretation of a lot of these people is they will say, oh, they're not very social. Yeah. They don't care about other people. Mm, Right. They don't... And they'll think that themselves because early when they were two, three years old, they convinced themselves of that because it was just easier to convince themselves of that. Right, And these people actually don't go to therapy a lot. No. We see, we see a lot of the borderline people, but th- theoretically there's just as many avoidant people, but we barely ever see them because they avoid contact with other yeah. human beings. Borderline people actually seek contact seek and they end up in our offices. Right. Um so clinicians out there when you actually do come across an avoidant person, like really try to make sure that you identify it early and know how to treat it so that because That might be the one time they ever give it a a
1: shot. You know what? That happened to me an hour ago. Really? Yeah. First time? No, 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 no. But uh, this fella came to see me because it's couple counseling and his wife is insistent. Uh So he's there because she's there. Yeah. And it's fascinating because on the one hand, it's like I feel like I'm walking a tightrope with him. Yeah. You know, on the one hand, it's like, yeah, there's, there's some benefit for him coming here. And at the same time, he's very clear this is not what he would choose. Right. And it's like, okay, so I want to make this a safe place for him, but in order to make his marriage better, (laughs) I'm going to have to invade his space. (laughs) Right.
0: So the strategy that I've used in situations like that, if you care to hear it. I want to hear it. Is I meet them where they're at. Yeah. Obviously. And then just try to extend the envelope from there. So for some for some couples like this, because men are socialized to avoid, women are socialized to, to be more pursuing. And so that's right. why you see of borderlines, two-thirds of them happen to be women. There's other studies that see half and half when you actually extend the criteria into what is commonly labeled as narcissistic right. for men. But, um, and for avoiding, I don't know the stats, but I'm guessing that it tends to be more male. More men. Um and it's a common scenario where you have conflict in a marriage and the preoccupied person drags the avoidant person into therapy. And then the preoccupied person is talking a lot and the avoidant person is saying things like, I don't know, everything, she's just always yelling at me. I don't yeah. know. And so the I've worked with couples like this for years where the I essentially let the avoidant person avoid therapy for years where they just come in and there's not much of them disclosing, I know not to really push it too yeah. hard with them. Right. And that while the preoccupied person talks a lot, mm-hmm. and we might s- spend 95% of the sessions for the first two years on the preoccupied person. It's a delicate balance because yeah. sometimes the preoccupied person will go like, what, is this all about me? So I, I always have to make sure that I balance things out yeah. in a summary sort of thing at the end. Yeah. But uh, I think a common mistake that some couple therapists will make is they will really go after the avoidant person oh, and say, yeah. like, you know, you need to step up to the plate, too. Right. Or or a more veiled transference reaction is I'm trying to include the avoidant person. They'll say, like, oh, I, I, you know, it doesn't seem fair that the avoidant person isn't saying more. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not fair that this one person dominates the session while the other person takes the, se- the back seat. Which, of course, could be another issue and could be actually happening that you might have to manage. But if you assess it correctly, you could be like, well, the avoided person and the preoccupied person, this is their comfort zone. Yeah. And I'm going to extend it a little bit. But I, if I really go for it, I'll
1: never see him again. Yeah, yeah. Aliening. Or they'll come in and not participate. Right. Yeah. So, Which is what a person has probably learned to do right. to survive in the world.
0: Right. Yeah. So imagine you're avoidant, and that that worked for you, right. not because you're a dick, but because you needed it. Yeah. Because your parents were alcoholic or abusive yeah. or sexually abusive or, you know, whatever. And then you walk into therapy for the first time in your life, you're dragged in there, and your therapist just completely has super focus on you, eye contact, asking you how you feel. Just imagine how terrifying that would be. Yeah. And how you would really resort to some pretty severe coping strategies to get out of that discomfort. Right. right. And so, um,
1: you know, that's just something to think about. Uh, I ended up, uh, doing my very best to validate him, validate his position on things and point out the, um, the dilemma of coming and being, you know, probed and also, you know, his need for safety and, how just showing up was sort of um, just by itself uh, an invalidation. Yeah. You know, like that he's just like, anyways, and saying to him, look, job one, make this room a safe place for you, whatever we can do. Great. Yeah. Yeah, Excellent. Yeah.
0: Like that guy. Nice man. Cool. Yeah. Uh, An honest patron, your last question here, is it possible for that description to be applied to all mental illnesses For most, I would say yes. Adjustment disorders, absolutely. There's a spectra. Right. For phobias, in a sense. uh, Degrees of fear, don't you think?
1: Don't you think degrees of fear?
0: Yeah, but I could imagine saying something like, for example, claustrophobia or something. All right. I could imagine some people having a mild case of it, for sure. Yeah. I have a mild case of it. Mm -hmm. I used to have a more... Moderate case of it. Do you need a hug? (laughs) Uh, But I could also see many people not having that fear at all.
1: Oh, right. Oh, right.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But I guess if you pushed it to a certain level, like if you bound everyone, if you bound like 10,000 people for it and did a sufficient amount of discomfort, would everyone freak out eventually?
1: Mm. Maybe not. I don't know. You know, there's that the Temple Granin. You remember her? No. The woman who uh, has a form of autism. Okay. And she has she invented this machine that they use. Oh, yeah. You know, the squeezy for machine. Cow. For cows. Oh, for cows. Yeah, yeah. For yeah. cows, yeah. And then, you know, she's got a people version. Okay. And those folks, the sense of being squeezed might make one person claustrophobic, and for the other person, it's actually soothing. Right. Like swaddling.
0: Right. So I think for some disorders, we can't say that yeah, everyone like has it.
1: Specific phobia. But phobia in general humans have fear. Right. Degrees of fear. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh,
0: but like things like dissociation, for example, you could make an argument that everyone has at least mild dissociative experiences. The common example that we give often is driving a car. Yeah. And you sort of zone out. Right. And you don't remember stopping at the stoplight or anything. You're like, how right. did I get here? Um, but the... I consider that to be quite distinct from the dissociative process that you see from traumatic right. events early in life. Uh, psychosis is another thing. Oh, that, yeah, that's probably not a degree thing. Right. You can't really say that everyone is on the psychotic spectrum. No. Really. Um, bipolar also is another thing that probably you can't not. really say everyone is bipolar. Uh, I mean, you can make an argument, I suppose, but it doesn't seem to ring true for me. But like I said, adjustment disorders, anxiety in general, depression, depression in, in general, in general. Um,
1: ADHD in general, you could say there's probably a spectra there. You know, it's weird because it's sort of apples and oranges. You know, like there's this book that has all these diagnoses in it and it's sort of uh, – people just have a range of experience. Yeah. You know, they have a range of uh, things that happen and, and a range of feelings about stuff and so, right. you know – and uh, the
0: wonder, the wonderful thing about this question from The Honest Patron is that it illuminates, perhaps listening to this podcast or other people who talk in this way, that illuminates the problem with the way that our society tends to think about diagnoses yeah. as these discrete things, right? It's like... You either have a broken arm or you don't. Right. You either have cancer or you don't. You either have leukemia or you don't. You either had a stroke or you didn't. You either had a heart attack or you didn't. Right. So you can't have, you're not at a spectrum of having to remove your gallbladder, for example. You, know? <laughs> you either need to remove it or, or you don't. Right, you know? It's discreet. Yeah. And so we tend to look at mental conditions mm. in the DSM in the same way. You either have that, you know, you either have ADHD or you don't. You either have bipolar disorder or you don't. And that is not always a helpful way of looking at it. No. And so it's it's a great question in that way. And, and this just adds to the confusion of our industry. <laughs> it just means that essentially you have to think of things. Everything is on a spectrum, and you have to think in these really philosophical ways. Because even if you identify that, say, borderline there's a spectrum – well, how do we identify at what point they are on that on that spectrum? Yeah, one person will have the threshold extremely high. The sure. other person will have it very low. Right, and guess what? They're both right. Yeah, because there's no way to distinguish the validity of either position. You no, know? it's just the consensus viewpoint. Right, but even the consensus people will say, "Well, if someone else wants to make a case for a different." Threshold, then fine. If that's what you, that doesn't matter to us, because the key is, well, what does this mean for our jobs? Which is treatment, which right. is outcomes, which is actually helping people uh, with their lives, and that is a highly subjective thing too. Yeah, you could have someone in therapy for a year, and they could be assessed before and after, and actually have worse borderline symptoms, but report that the therapy helped and their life is better. Oh, yeah, self-report. Which, well, heavy. which is flawed, but also yeah. it could be true. That sure. Imagine, you know, just a scenario like this, like someone comes into therapy for the first time and he has borderline and, you know, consensus would see he rises to the level of the, of the DSM disorder and he is very sad. And he's had a lifetime of sadness and a lifetime of hurt and a lifetime of difficult relationships and low self-esteem. And he's in therapy with someone and the the therapist knows about this sort of thing. There's some uh, awareness that is, uh, you know, built over time, the therapist slowly starts to say, well, so I think because of your traumas, you know, this is your reactivity and and the client is like, "Whoa, this is mind blowing! Mm-hmm. For the first time, I'm seeing the connection between my trauma, the mistreatment, my sensitivity, the projective identification I involve in, and the, the you know the, the ways I kind of create chaos in mm-hmm. my life. Um, and and yet their condition hasn't been healed, mm-hmm. right? They still have the sensitivity. They're just knowing about it doesn't necessarily take it away. In fact, it yeah. Never does really, no in my no. Experience. It helps, a little, but it helps. It helps. It helps because you're like, oh wow, that was. I, I'm I'm mind blown that I get it now. I have a direction to go in. Right. Fast forward a year from the beginning of therapy. Say just some random circumstances happen where their relationships got worse just out of circumstance, and their symptoms are worse. They're yeah. perhaps more suicidal, more depressed, uh, more isolated. But the client says. But man, I am much better now because I know my condition. My life is more in shambles now than it was a year ago. But I benefited from therapy. So get (laughs) that, you people out there, that the person is worse in terms of their symptoms, but therapy worked. So that is why our industry is fucked because we have no idea how to uh, measure outcomes. Like, which do you look at? And what do you believe? And maybe the client is deluded, you know? Right. And just saying that because they want the therapist to like the client. That could happen. That could. So that's why it gets very weird. Right. Well, let's take a break, and when we get back, let's continue the weirdness. What do you say, Bob? Sure. All right, we're back from the break. I have a couple announcements here. Uh, first off, we're starting some new tiers on Patreon on June 1, 2019. So if you're not a patron yet, you want to do so before June 1st, because you'll get in on the benefits of that tier at a lower price. Also, we have a new goal that we're trying to reach on Patreon uh, where w- when we get a certain amount of patrons, we'll have a our third scholarship. Third? Ha- our third scholarship. Wow. And we'll have, uh, and we'll also give $1,000 to Pet Finder, which connects uh, animals that might be euthanized with loving homes. How'd you choose Pet Finder? What? How did you choose it? Well, my cats came from Pet Finder. Oh, right. And I just have, I have other friends, Nicole, whom you know mm-hmm. was involved with them as well. And I think my neighbors in, when I lived in Lake city mm-hmm. were foster parents for animals through pet finder because that's what they do. They pet finder is a, is a foundation and the, you know, I don't know if you know this Bob, but to, for the listeners, so an a pet a animal will be at the humane society or something. And, People think the Humane Society doesn't euthanize. They do oh, euthanize. Yeah. 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 The, they would argue they do it humanely, but the but Humane Society doesn't have the funds to yeah. house thousands upon thousands no. of of these animals. Yeah. So what Petfinder does is they have all these volunteers who sign up and say I'll be a volunteer, and then this website, you know. S- is up and you can search for these. Like this animal needs a home right away; otherwise, it's going to be euthanized. And these foster parents will say, "Well, I'm in the area. I'll, you know, I have an extra room. I'll put, right. I'll put uh, the animals in there." My neighbor in Lake City had like at any given time like fifteen animals, dogs and cats, really, in their house. Yeah, wow. They their their kids had all moved out. Yeah, and so they just had all these extra rooms, and yeah. like each bedroom had its own like little ecosystem. <laughs> and uh you no know, fun. feeding all of them, but it was it was really fun, you yeah, know yeah. Yeah. there are all these little creatures running around and and then while they 're in foster care, they 're still on the website waiting right. to be adopted, right. and Some animals would be there for a week, and some animals would be there for a couple of months or something and yeah. and then, if they're nearby, then the foster parents would either drive the animals over or you know so it's this grassroots organization where there's all these volunteers and When you give them money, then obviously that helps with the website, helps with their admin, and also helps with getting the animals, uh, their medical treatment, their vaccinations, you know, their getting fixed or whatever they call it. What does Bob on um, The Price is Right say? Bob Barker. Bob Barker. uh,
1: Get 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 your your pet spayed and neutered. I think um, the new guy, Drake Harry, he says that too,
0: just to 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 keep the the legacy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I thought he was going to suck, but he's pretty good. Is he good? Yeah. Yeah. Also, uh, our second scholarship is ready to go. So go to our website. The due date is June 30th. Last time with our first scholarship, we only had, I don't know, 20 to 30 applicants. So your chances of getting it are pretty good. And the scholarship is $2,500, $2,500. That goes a long way. Yeah. It doesn't go that far when you're in graduate school,
1: but, you know, it can definitely it, help, right? It goes $2,500 far. <laughs> and then the third one, wh- what's the what's the goal for the third one? Uh, the third one is
0: 1,500 patrons. Wow. Where are we at? Uh, we're 14, right now, I think we're at 1,400, so. Wow. Yeah. So, it's getting there. Uh, anonymous patron wrote in, I recently revealed to my therapist that I developed a crush slash erotic transference for him. Oh. I feel that therapy had been helpful for me up to that point, but his response was rather strange. Well, I have been having issues with my boyfriend and lack of communication is killing our sex life, all of which had been discussed for the previous 5 sessions or so. After we briefly touched on the topic of transference, I revealed to my therapist that I had been casually browsing dating sites about actually without actually talking to anyone on those dating sites. My therapist said something That has been bothering me for almost a week afterwards in response. So just to make sure that this is clear, she told him that she had a erotic transference for him, Mm -hmm. had a crush on him. And then uh, then she says, I sometimes I browse dating websites, you know, thinking maybe I'll break up with my boyfriend or Mm -hmm. something, you know, maybe she's saying that. My therapist said something that was uh, strange. He said that he probably shouldn't mention it, but back when he had used dating sites, he had matched with a former client and didn't know how to react. I thought that was a strange anecdote to share with a client who had just revealed that they had a crush on him. Also strange that he matched with a client at all. Surely he'd recognize her before swiping right. Am I crazy for not understanding or for not seeing what therapeutic good there was and telling me that story? Bob, what do you think?
1: Um, I don't know, black and white, good, bad, or whatever. It, clearly, it's having this impact. Talk about it. Talk yeah. about it. Take it to therapy. Talk about it. Talk about it. You know, therapists aren't perfect. Maybe it is a mistake. Yeah. And how about um, having a relationship that's characterized by good repair than one that never has a rupture?
0: Awesome. Yeah, a lot of people email me with questions in this category. Yeah,
1: and and listen, I get it because it's fucking hard to talk to therapists about therapy or about them. <laughs> oh god, I've had erotic transferences towards my therapist. Mm. Ugh, it's embarrassing. Did you bring it up? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Was it awkward?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything is cracked up to be.
0: How did they react?
1: Matter of factly, I think she just said, "Yeah, I know." <laughs> 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 Meaning she already knew? Uh, I think she must have, yeah. And I said, you know, I feel really bad about it. And it's just... Me feeling really bad about it is a therapeutic value. Like, that's sort of something that happens for me. So, it's worth talking about. When it was, here's live and in the room and woo, right. right now. like Because on the other hand, it's nothing to be ashamed of. So, no. I have shame, but there's nothing to be ashamed of. No. Like, what an opportunity this is. Did she react in a therapeutic way? I'm thinking... I mean, she didn't react in an untherapeutic way. I'm just trying to remember what actually she did. Let's see. She, uh, she said, I know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she stayed matter of fact. I I don't remember exactly. exactly. It was a while back. I don't remember how she reacted, but I don't have any bad feelings about the way she reacted. So okay. I think it probably was good. Or Sorry. it was neutral. It was neutral. Yeah.
0: Uh, which is good. Because yeah. as long as it doesn't go bad, yeah. then it doesn't fall in line with your old model, which is that you should be ashamed and da, da, da.
1: Yeah. She did nothing to reinforce my shameful feelings. Yeah. You know, and maybe I think if I had to say one thing about it, I'd say I didn't bring it up enough. Oh. Like it was on my mind and it would have been in my interest to to raise it um, just to, I don't know, work it through if that's a way to put it or... yeah. You
0: know. Well, the mechanism at play is, in general, I don't know if this is true for you, Bob, is that the person, the client, because of their relational traumas, is experiencing a, an outpouring of attachment energy towards yeah. this individual because this individual is a trustworthy, secure person. Yeah. And so the feelings that have been pent up waiting for someone to please come and love me mm. and care for me just are unbridled as they just gush toward this individual. They're just, and often it's just that one person. There's there's like no one else in this person's life that yeah. this energy is going towards. And along with it, I kind of, I guess in the gushing analogy, I, I sort of think of it as like uh, when you have – a gushing river, like it erodes the side of the, of the, you know, you'll see like a, like a water, like what do you call it? Like when there's a flash flood, you'll see like trees and rocks getting like carried down. Washed down. Yeah. Well, it it brings along Mm. eroticism along the way, because it, in a situation where it's, it doesn't really make any sense. And the client isn't thinking, yay, I want to feel erotic toward this person. What they're, Uh, what they're really thinking or what their baseline thinking is, I want this person to make me feel like I'm loved. I want them. I want this person to make me feel like I'm worthy. I want this person to notice me Mm -hmm. and not pressure me to be something else. But, and so that's all there and that's all wonderful and sort of um, non-awkward, I shall say, but along with that gushing experience comes the rocks of erotic transference as well. And, then that can be, and then the person, the client experiences ongoing shame about how they are and ongoing predictions of rejection and ongoing, yeah. uh, you know, worry about like, I'm going to be abandoned. And then the person will look at their crush and their erotic transference and say, this is what is going to ruin it. Yeah. You know, they'll, they'll look at the client, will look at that and say, this is, I'm going to fuck this up you know, or we're going to fall in love and have sex and that will fuck it up. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? Like this is, this boulder coming down the, mm-hmm. that down the river, this, it's going to ruin something. It's scary. It's scary. It's, yeah. it, it's unknown. It, it, this is bad. It's a bad thing. And the healthy thing is to bring that up, which you did. So you bring it up and you say, so, Hey, I just want to tell you, <laughs> I, I, I have a crush on you. Yeah. And, I, I guess I'm like sexually attracted to you. Sure. I said that. And then the therapist says, okay, I I know. <laughs> or well, um, I minded. <laughs> I can tell by your boners, sir.
1: <laughs> well, easy easy. <laughs> Just joking.
0: <laughs> um, uh, or, you know, more typically is, oh, okay, well, thank you for telling me. I'm I'm I know it must have been hard to say and I'm glad you said and it's fine. Just so you know, nothing's ever going to happen between us. But uh, it, I want you to tell me that, however often you want to talk about it. Yeah, um, everything's fair game to talk about in therapy. Yeah. To talk about right. In therapy. And so, as as the client is doing that, the therapist is not shaming. The therapist is not rejecting. No. The therapist is uh, cool with it. Is like accepting of the emotional energy. Sure. And this is a massive corrective experience because it was the one thing that the client was really terrified of revealing, Right, and they reveal it, and the test is successfully passed by the therapist, proving that the client is worthy of love, not rejectable, their feelings are okay. Yeah, they're okay. And so by repeating that exercise in therapy as it comes up for you, not just a one-shot deal where you—because I get a lot of emails from people, clients, they'll say— that they they said it to their therapist a long time ago, yeah. and they're still kind of busted up about it. Yeah. And like you say, it's like, well, just keep bringing it up. Bringing it up. I had a client once who brought it up every other session, maybe every session. Yeah, She told me that she was in love with me and wanted to marry me. And she wasn't psychotic. She was relationally just, traumatized. Just, and she brought it up every time. And I commended her, and we talked about it. And, you know, it was... It was a many years of a therapeutic relationship, and she uh, healed through that experience. And uh, therapists out there need to know how to respond. Now, yeah. looking at your particular situation, anonymous patron, there's three things I'll say. The one, the the first thing is a short thing is that not all dating sites are Tinder, so not all dating. So you know, she says, it's strange that that he matched with a client at all. Surely he'd recognize her before swiping right. So, uh, I don't really know what that means. So, well, you remember match.com and sure. those kinds of things from back that day. Well, with Tinder, you look at a picture and you either swipe right or swipe left, meaning yes or no. Okay. It's just like, I like this person's look. Um, and you swipe right. Meaning what, do, what does that mean? If you say yes, you're, you're saying, so, w- so when you swipe right, I believe it's right. When you swipe, yes, you're saying, I'm interested. Oh. If the other um, person, while they're looking at their f- feed of different people, oh, okay. they, and if they also swipe to the yes, yeah. then
1: you both get a notification saying you both swiped right. Do you remember when we used to go to the lava lounge? <laughs> you predicted this was going to happen, that there was going to be some device. Yeah. That it was going to do this essentially. Well, and sometimes
0: with I think Tinder and other like Grinder and these kinds of apps, you can make it uh, so that I only want to I only want to see the people on Tinder who are within as z- like within a hundred yards of of my GP- oh, of my wow. GPS. Really? So it's some yeah. So this was twenty years ago, and I had this idea of like, uh, wouldn't it be nice if you had a device where you could just sort of point it at somebody <laughs> um, and say like. Um, I'm interested in that person. I'm interested in that person. And then if they also have mm-hmm. a device and they point it at you, they zap you back, and they zap you back, then you both get a notification. But without that notification, then you know you don't, you shouldn't approach that person because they're, they, if they, if you haven't got an, an affirmative yeah. invite, essentially, um, yeah. So essentially, that's what Tinder is. It's funny that you mentioned that. <laughs> um, so. Uh, so you many match, many sites will will match people up. Is that random? At ran, well algorithmically. Yeah, they'll be know. like you'll fill out a profile, and you know okay. they have their own BS metr- yeah. metrics, and yeah, they say okay, these two people are compatible, right? And they'll send you an email saying like you you've been matched with someone. So oh, to the okay. anonymous patron, I just want to point out that your therapist could be talking about that. And not necessarily swiping of course he wouldn't swipe right on his own client. That would be ridiculous. The, this, I mean, at least I hope so. It sounds like that's the case. Yeah. Number two is um yeah, given your account of the situation, it kinda sounds like an odd response. But it's not that odd. And I wouldn't really worry about it. You know, it in the in the scale of things that I hear of responses from therapists to these situations, I have to say like it's a little awkward and a little odd given your description, but sure. but nothing to be like, oh my God, does this mean I can't trust him? Because I think that's what the anonymous patron is asking is yeah. like, can I trust this guy yeah. with this? Is, is he starting to invest his own sexual energy into this? Is this a stable, safe relationship? These and, would
1: be really important things for that person to talk about, not because the therapist is a dangerous character, but because these questions are arising in this particular person. And wow, what an opportunity. Right. Go for it.
0: Right. Then, so number three is talk with your therapist about it. Just be like, so you said this story the other time, and I just have to say, I kind of find it a little strange. Um, could you please help me with that? Or when you said that story, it kind of scared me into yeah. th- thinking that maybe you're not a safe person to talk to. Brilliant. Um, and so give that therapist a chance to uh, know what's happening and respond therapeutically. Yeah. Having said that, I have to say, I have read so many horrific emails from clients talking about therapists who don't know what they're doing in this area that it, it just worries me when I mm. when I give that advice, because I can't depend on this therapist to have an idea about how to respond to this sort of thing. I mean, it yeah. sounds like things are going well. Right? Sounds like he had. I mean, uh, we're just going from this person's yeah. What do we description? Know? Sure. But it is kind of odd, you know. Your your client is like, I have a crush on you, and uh, blah blah blah. Okay. End of paragraph. You know what? I've been on dating. Uh, websites yeah. and blah, blah blah, and then he's like, "Oh yeah, you know, one time I I got matched up with a client once.
1: Like that sort of it seems like a non sequitur. <laughs> yeah, and and it does make you think, like, yeah. oh, what was happening inside that person at that particular time when they said that thing? Like, exactly. what is it? Is that a way to? Is that an expression of um, interest or an expression of? I'm
0: occasionally on dating sites. Right. If you see me on those dating sites, I'm just telling you, like, it's not a big deal, and I want you to oh, know that it's okay. Like that an,
1: it, a, an attempt to reassure?
0: Yeah, like, you might bump into me on dating sites. I could see a, a therapist flubbing that, you know? Oh, I'm so glad I don't have to deal with that. <laughs> uh, all right, moving on. Another anonymous patient wrote, as someone with OCD, I appreciate oh. when, you, when you've talked about why people shouldn't say they're quote-unquote so OCD because they like things to be orderly, etc. Oh, right. I also have PTSD, and I keep hearing you say things like that you still have PTSD from things like graduate school, internship, and other kinds of situations. Oh. Would you consider either stopping or you know, stop using that term or talking on the podcast about, about why it's okay to use diagnostic labels in these instances. Wow. Is it entirely possible that it's that it's totally appropriate? It's, oh, it's entirely possible that it's totally appropriate and I'm just overly sensitive. Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the topic since it's something I hear tossed around by students in my graduate program as well. So yeah, if that's how I'm coming across, that's awful. If I'm coming across like I'm just Oh my God, I'm so PTSD. I'm freaked out. And, I, yeah. and I'm just using the label in this very flippant way. Yeah. That is an awful, awful thing. And I'm really sorry about that. Yeah. I don't remember exactly every time I've used the term, but let me tell you, I actually have PTSD from grad school. Are you still troubled? Yeah.
1: No shit? Yeah, absolutely. What happens?
0: If I get triggered by certain people yeah. who... Like there are like my hands. So just to give you an idea of my physiological PTSD, as I approach the topic about topic about talking about this trauma that I went through in graduate school, my hands start to sweat. My body has a physical reaction, like I'm standing next to a cliff. You know, is it
1: okay if you and I are talking about this right now? Yeah,
0: I'm. I'm at the level now where I'm. I'm not. So would I rise to the full diagnostic label? Okay, maybe not. But I don't know, I I, I find that using PTSD as a thing that can only refer to a severe case of PTSD, I find to invalidate a lot of what we might say minor cases of PTSD that are very real. And I'm not going to walk around going like, um, I need a ton of support or something around this. But I think in my estimation, most people have minor forms of PTSD maybe regarding very specific things right and to me the the key feature of PTSD is as you approach the memory or essentially the memory of something your body has a physiological response to that that's a really nice succinct way to put it when I think about garbage trucks I just saw one drive by oh I don't have any physiological response to that in terms of like fear or distress. Yeah. But when I think about certain professors that I had to endure the abuse of, certain supervisors that absolutely emotionally abused me when I was in my early career, Yeah. when I think about certain students that I had to be with in Mm -hmm. graduate school, Mm -hmm. this is all during my doctorate program, by the way. It wasn't during my
1: master's. And we were cool then.
0: Yeah. I have a physi, you know, my hands are sweating even more now. And if I really Mm -hmm. went down this road and really started to go into the material, you'd hear my voice get upset. You'd hear I would start to sweat a little bit. My mood would become really bad. I'd I'd feel myself sort of slumping into a funk. So when I say I have PTSD, now I don't know about every time I've used the term in the podcast, but I suspect that when I've used it, at least most time, if not all the time, I'm using it legitimately. Yeah. Now, I'm not debilitated, staying at home, having to take medication, you know, in desperate need of right. support, dissociative, you know, like that's, I'm not at that level, Yeah. but I have a physiological response right. to memories that yeah. are distressing
1: to me. So, you know, one of the ways I talk about that is uh, I say, oh, it's a trauma response. Yeah. Right. And, you know, it sort of goes to the thing that we were talking about earlier is like, are there milder forms of borderline personality disorder? What is borderline personality disorder? That's a label, right? So I I, I really like what you're saying here about um, not wanting to invalidate a response that doesn't meet certain criteria and say, well, oh, that doesn't count because that's not, you know, it doesn't check X, Y, and Z boxes. And I actually really appreciate what this patron is saying. It's sort of like, well, that is a real disorder, right? I mean, it seems like both of you have a point. Totally. Yeah.
0: Well, I think the main point that I'm getting from it is when I use the term like, I still have PTSD from graduate school, Mm -hmm. I need to clarify, I actually have mild PTSD from graduate school. I'm not just saying it in the colloquial sense that, it was troubling for me <laughs> yeah. and I don't
1: like it. Yeah. This isn't glib or flippant. This is right. like, this is true for you. Right. I mean, this is not true for you. That sounds so fucking bullshit. This is true. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. I mean, I
0: didn't pick up on that, but yeah. Anonymous patron along these lines wrote in, I have a, I have been contemplating on how to write this email for a while. You never like to see the beginning of that email, <laughs> The beginning of an email starting with that. I've been contemplating on how to write this email for a while. Mm. This is a different patron. It is in regards to your mention of bipolar disorder in your podcasts. I have listened to a lot of your podcasts, current and older ones, that have, and have learned a lot from your insight as a mental health professional on various psychological subjects and enjoyed your podcasts that are purely entertaining regarding movies, etc., it is bothersome to me that most of the time when you reference bipolar disorder in the podcast, it's as if it's as, it's as if those of us with it are untreatable or are so seriously ill that we are somehow categorized differently. Even in your recent podcast when discussing infanticide, you referred to the fact that a reason a mother might throw her baby away would be due to her suffering from bipolar. E- end of email. Uh, again, if that is what... I am coming across as saying that's awful and I apologize. And I absolutely could see it being reasonable to walk away from some of my occasional, cause I, I, it's pretty rare that I go into depth on bipolar, but my occasional dropping of the label. And, you know, if, if that is the message I'm giving across, which I'm guessing is a reasonable thing to receive, I sincerely apologize for that. That's awful. Yeah. Um, but, i My explanation or excuse or something is that when or so my explanation well i'll start with my what I need to adjust again, when I use bipolar as a label, I need to expand on that a little bit if I'm just going to drop that in, I have to expand like if I was to so in the podcast where I was talking about parents who who kill their newborn infants, which is a horrible thing to think about' oh, and talk yeah, about awful. I was looking at the research, and I think at some point it was like serious mental illness was one of the factors that could lead to it. Now, the vast, vast majority of people with serious mental illness that have children do not kill their babies. Of course. But according to the research, might be kind of a factor with some people. Um, certainly not the only factor that could, that's could that been identified. You know? Oh, is
1: this one of those... Um If if I have bipolar disorder, am I a threat to my kid? If I'm a threat to my kid, does that mean I have bipolar disorder? You know how, like, you can go both ways with that thing and one doesn't really have much to do with the other? Right. It's sort of like when you have
0: psychosis, you're slightly more likely to commit a violent crime. Yeah. But – the vast, vast majority of people who commit violent crimes are not psychotic. Not psychotic. <laughs> and the vast, vast majority of people who are psychotic do not commit violent crimes. So just because you are you have a slight yeah, increase in, in risk. Some then overlap. It, it, pe- because people don't really understand statistics – They'll interpret it as right. psychotic people are violent.
1: Are violent, which is, the, of course, the supported by the cultural stereotype and stigma, yada, yada, yada.
0: Right. It's sort of like a, a more a, a stark example that most people can relate to is being male means you're slightly more likely to go on a killing spree. because oh, right. Because killing sprees are majority men. Yeah. But should we look at all men as if they're about to go on a killing spree? Yes. So, and I bet you the statistics, I don't know. You could say, I'm guessing that the statistics, you could actually have a conclusion that would say, if you're male, you're 50 times more likely to go on a killing spree. Sure. Or maybe a hundred times. Which looks significant. Which is like, holy crap. Wow. If you're male, you're 50 times more likely to go on a killing spree wow, I should be afraid of men. It's like, well, no, because the vast, vast majority of men do not go on killing sprees. Well, it's 50 times more than what? 0.00001, you know what I mean? 50 times more than that isn't much. Right, so uh, when it comes to bipolar, you're slightly more likely to kill your child if you have a serious mental illness, like severe bipolar, which is one of the things I need to say. Because the thing about this is, is that bipolar as we've been saying, is a spectrum. There are, most people that I've treated on bipolar are in a category of they were diagnosed long ago, they have been taking medication, and they have some mild ups and downs, but they're living regular lives, and and some people on medication with bipolar have no symptoms. They have some side effects from the meds. They need to do uh, blood checks for their kidney function with lithium every once in a while. Mm -hmm. But they're everything's good and and it it was as if they never had the disorder so when i say something like being bipolar can lead to you know if the implication was yeah, like right. bipolar people kill their babies Ugh. like that's an awful thing to Ugh, say terrible um so you know i i apologize for that and i could absolutely see someone walking away with that impression especially given the stigma around bipolar And so I just want to uh, point that out and apologize for that one. Um, Any thoughts about that, Bob?
1: No, I like what you're
0: saying. So, the last one here we'll get into Patron Tim writes in I've been listening, I've listened to your episodes on therapist imposter syndrome and other amateur things beginning therapists wrestle through. I was wondering if you could speak more to performance anxiety in beginning therapists. I've been experiencing this a lot lately as I'm working with mandated clients wow. and feel like I have to keep them engaged somehow. Wow. Bob, what do you think?
1: Well, that's rough. Yeah. What's amateur mean? Uh, novice, I'm, get, I'm guessing. Oh, okay. So, so this person has anxiety about whether or not they're fraudulent as they're seeing people who perhaps, good, good chance, don't want to be there. Exactly. Wow, that sounds really rough. Right. So not only are
0: novice therapists inherently terrified of what's happening, because in part of the things we've already been talking about, that it's hard to know when you're actually doing well. Yeah. I, I remember, and I've I'll, I'll said this before in the podcast, and I'll say it many more times, at the end of my internship, so I've for a year, I've been treating you know dozens of people. I remember at the end of my internship, maybe even telling you, mm. I wasn't sure if any of my clients had benefited from my therapy. Oh, I've had this thought about me many times. And actually, with some veracity behind it. Yeah. Like, I, and honestly, looking back, I think there's a possibility that none of my clients really improved all that much. Now, yeah. I can tell you, I tried with all those clients. Sure. And I can also tell you, I listened to all those clients. Right. And I can tell you that all those clients felt heard,
1: which is helpful. Well, that gets underestimated. Right. That gets severely underestimated. Right. But at the same time, it was really hard to know
0: if that was worth anything. Right. You know, I I, I would hear my mentor saying, it's worth something, keep doing it. Sure. But I, it wasn't, I hadn't really internalized that no. yet, you know. Yeah. So you have all those things going on. And it's a very complex job with... 400 plus theories guiding us in oh wow so many different you know you're getting pulled in all these different directions and you have like tremendous counter transference that you're probably just beginning to understand right if at all particularly if you don't have any supervisors that are actually asking you such
1: questions yeah
0: and yeah it's a freaky ass job man it's freaky take
1: it from us we're into it 20 plus years Bob do you still freak out oh not not since yesterday <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I freak out. I mean, freak out, that's a bit strong, but I get anxious all the time. In fact, yeah. I was at a training a year ago and a teacher, very lovely, lovely, gosh, she was amazing, a uh, couple counselor. She's like, I've been doing this for 40 years. I still get nervous every time a new, client, a new couple walk into my office. She's like, it's just part of the deal, Yeah, right? But I, I got to tell you, I can't imagine what this young person's going through with mandated clients. thats to, uh, That sounds very difficult. Right. That's the key here. And this is something that I
0: fucking go ballistic over. So if you, Tim, do not have supervisors or instructors that are telling you what, I, what Bob has alluded to, and I'm going to go into more detail on, then you are being mistreated. What you need to be told, Tim, is that when clients are coming to you mandated Many of them don't want to be in therapy with you. It is not your job to convince them to want therapy. Hell no. It is not your job to make the session useful to them. Nope. It is not your job to get them to buy into therapy and engage in therapy. That is not your job. At what point did you take a class on how to manipulate other human beings to want to be in therapy with you?
1: Yeah, and it's also not your job to have some kind of report to whoever the powers that be are—judge ju- or judicialist, whatever it is—you got to report to. It's not your job to report something fucking favorable, or even your own supervisor. Yeah. I,
0: I know people who have supervisors, and they—you know—the client, the intern has mandated clients, and the supervisor is like. Well, why aren't you engaging them? Ah! <laughs> be- because the supervisor has an incentive because the supervisor has a boss that is trying to make money. Yeah. And the boss is like, the more people we can engage and, you know, the better for our bottom line. And also, yeah. we're contracting with the state for these mandated people and hey, we, right. we need to treat them. Right, And so well, they'll, they'll pressure the supervisor who pressures the intern
1: to pressure the clients to want to be in therapy. What is treatment though at that point? somebody's forced to come in, what is treatment? Because it ain't like it is if somebody's walking involuntarily. It's, it's not treatment. It's not treatment. So, so what are, What actually it's is... It's prison. It's a sentence. What's this guy's job? Like, what right. actually is his job? Because it isn't the same as my job. No. And I've had... I mean, you've had mandated
0: clients before, right? Uh,
1: oh, Two and not in twenty five years.
0: Oh man, I had so many. Like as a family therapist, oh, yeah. you get a lot of, you man- a lot of them right? mandated kids. Yeah. And parents for that matter, you know, CPS, this kind of thing. It's awful. And early in my career I came to the realization, I don't know how, maybe someone helped me with this, is that I was like, Okay, if this client's mandated, I'll give it kind of some effort. <laughs> I'll you know, I'll give it some some effort without expectations Mm -hmm. to engage with them. But if it doesn't work, then fuck this situation. This is not why I entered the field. I did not enter the field to convince people to be in therapy with me. I entered the field to open my door and say, who wants help? And if you don't want my help, please do not waste my time. And so, Tim, you're probably in a situation where you have to treat these mandated clients. You're forced by your boss. Yeah, you don't have a choice. Poor guy. But you do have a choice in how you look at it. Yeah. And you do have a choice in the shame you incur when these clients don't engage with you because they see you as a probation officer. Right. You do have a choice to push back a little bit on the supervisor if you're getting any pressure and say, well, I know that therapy is supposed to be voluntary. That's what I learned in graduate school. That's what my podcast talks about. And so, you know, I'll give it my best shot. But if the client doesn't want to be in therapy with me, there's nothing I can do about that. And We can I'm, talk about that. We can talk about it, but, you know, I'm not going to go home feeling like a piece of shit because of it.
1: Well, yeah, think about it from the mandated person's point of view, though. Like somebody's looking over their shoulder is going to be poking around in their life and is going to want information about what's going on in their life. You are not safe to walk into a counselor's office if somebody else is looking over your shoulder. So these poor mandated people, and I get it. I mean, it's not as simple as, let me restate. These folks that are mandated for treatment do not feel safe. Right. Why should they? Right. So why should they be open, vulnerable? Why should they engage? There's no incentive other than to keep the man off their back, if that's what it is. Yeah. That's not going to make anybody safe enough to do something that they otherwise might do if they were volunteering. Volunteering. So Tim's in a really difficult, difficult spot.
0: Right. So what I tell people to do when they're in the situation is to be extremely clear with your clients yep. and, clear. Say, and say something along the following, um, depending on your role and depending on what your supervisor is making you do. But if I was your supervisor, I would say, tell this to your client. Look, I know you're mandated to be with me. Right. But I have to say, I got into this field because I wanted to talk with people who wanted help. This is a good sentence. And I get that you you have to be here. And to tell you the truth, I have to be here too. Because <laughs> this is part of my job. And I'm I'm not going to play games trying to trick you into want, want to do therapy. But I I want to tell you that therapy can be a really helpful thing in the following ways. And maybe you'll list a couple ways. Um, and the other thing I'm going to tell you is if you say something that's incriminating to you, I'm not telling anybody about that, you know? So people can come in because they were caught by CPS abusing their kids. They can come in mandated. They can be mandated therapy because of drug abuse at school. Mm -hmm. They can be mandated treatment because of a criminal offense. Mm -hmm. They can be mandated treatment because of a custody battle and, and so on. And when I get those clients, I say, I am not going to tell the judge or the parole officer or your parents or any, I'm not going to tell anyone anything unless you want me to tell them. And if they and if they ask me to tell them something, I'm going to say, I, I am only legally obligated to tell you what, to, to give you my file. And client, I'm never going to put anything in my file that is going to incriminate you because I am not an arm of the law. I'm not an arm of your parents' authority. I'm not an arm of the court or the school, or and I am me. I'm a, I am a my own world, and ethics and laws protect me against having to do anything with those people. I am not a shill for those people. I'm for you. And if you want to use it, great. And if you don't, great. But know that you could tell me anything, and I swear to you, I'm not going to tell anybody about that. And I, And then I say that, Probably a dozen times because the first time I say it to these people, given their track record, they've probably been burnt and it wasn't really true. They can't really believe that such a person exists in the world that they could – especially if it's a kid and you're an adult and – the possibility that, you yeah. know, you you wouldn't say anything if they had a gun in their house or if they smoked crack or something. Now, I might say there's certain thresholds, like yeah. if you're going to kill yourself or hey, kill, that's just kill someone else, right. then, you know, I, ha- I have to do something. But if you told me you smoked pot or you got in a fight yesterday or you skipped school or you got a little angry at your kids the other day, you know, those kinds of things, um, not only uh, will I not, but I consider it a personal mission in life to protect your confidentiality. It's very important to me. Like me personally, even if you don't care, your confidentiality means a lot to me. And I find that therapists, one, don't know that they can say that Two, They don't know they're supposed to say that because they're being pressured by all these external institutions, which frankly can go to hell because we're therapists. We're here to help people. We're for the people. We're not, for the law. We're not for the cops. We're not for teachers. And, you know, we're not authorities. We're here to listen to people. We're here. To, it's a confidential space and we're here to heal. And so we need to really, and whenever I give this little, you know, soapbox speech to novice therapists, they're like, oh my God, I love that. I love and I'm that. like, how come you haven't heard that before? You know what I mean? At yeah. what point were you, did you, you know, there are so many instances like your ethics class, you should, that should have been a massive Chapter like, okay, fine, we can talk about it. But remember, the principle here is a safe, sacred place that has existed for over a hundred years of confidential information where a client can feel safe to just say, I'm sexually attracted to my neighbor, or I have fantasies of this and that, mm-hmm. or I'm really sad, or I feel like I'm a piece of shit, or Whatever they want to say that they would be embarrassed about telling other people, therapy is a sacred, sacred place that really doesn't exist outside of, like, the church, you know, like your relationship with your priest or something. You know, these are very sacred, important relationships that, you know, we have to hold on to, and you can't let the court or your supervisors interfere with that, in my view. Now, Tim, your supervisor might not know any of this, and so you might be kind of backed up against the wall, but understand that... You have that available to you, I guess one of the things that i'd sell, so if i have if I have an intern who has a supervisor who is so if if patron Tim's supervisor is pressuring him a lot of times what i'll tell if i'm also a supervisor i'll say to Tim, "Look, say yes to your supervisor, but do what i'm telling you to do <laughs> <laughs> pragmatic <laughs> because uh you know your clients come first, not your supervisor, mm-hmm. you know and If your supervisor finds out and fires you, well, you get to sleep well at night. Yeah, I was just going to say,
1: you sleep well at night. (laughs) Uh, Any final thoughts about that, Bob? No, good good, uh, soapbox.
0: Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because... You deserve it.